Welcome to Sofa Security Chat Chat, episode 199. For the 20th of May, 2015, I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm coming to you from Rome, Italy this week. How are you today, Paul? I'm great, Chester. Now, I'm conscious of the fact that you've just come from giving a talk and you've got some other event to, to uh, go back to. I'm, uh, I'm ready and willing to answer as quickly as I can. Excellent. Well, you know, last week there was some breaking news while we were doing the podcast about a new vulnerability uh, uh, deemed Venom, because, of course, everything gets a name now. And I'm not going to go into the whole name thing, but uh, Venom, in essence, was a little bit of a panic for some folks because the the headline when we were reading it was, you know, virtual machine escape, which uh, is a rather scary headline considering how much organizations rely on virtualization these days, whether that be in the cloud or on their own networks uh, within their organizations. You know, that whole idea of virtualizing things and sharing resource depends on the security of the hypervisor not allowing one virtual machine to interfere or interact with another virtual machine other than through, you know, virtual network connections or prescribed and controlled methods. So, uh, you know, Venom sounded pretty scary. Uh, where will we sit with this vulnerability? I think the real problem, Chester, is that a lot of uh, writers who probably should have known better decided to compare it to Heartbleed and said, oh, this is like the new Heartbleed because it's got a fancy name. The thing is that Heartbleed lets someone on the outside extract information from your server without so much as a buy or leave. Very hard to detect. The thing with Venom, as you say, it is a VM escape. It could allow a guest operating system to interfere with other guests or with the hosts. So that's serious. But you have to be inside in the first place, and you have to have root on the inside virtual machine. Now, if you have a naked hosted server where you can set it up as you like, you will have root, so that's serious. But it does mean for hosted services, say a blogging content platform, most users on there won't be allowed to have root. If they did, that would be a serious problem anyway. So I think that the comparison with Heartbleed and the panic that ensued was a little unfair and unreasonable because it kind of misled people about what this was all about. It's about a potential serious elevation of privilege in QEMU-based virtualization products. They've all been patched. Get the patch and apply it, and you will be fine. Yeah, I think uh, there was a a pretty strong reaction to this, but, you know, folks, I think, were worried about some of these uh, virtual private server hosting environments where arguably I could log in, create a new $3 instance, and now try to attack every other instance on the platform. Because as you say, I would be rude at that point. The good news, though, in this case is it's sort of a victory for the the method of coordinated disclosure that's often discussed. And without going into the whole disclosure debate, the idea behind coordinated disclosure is considering what the impacts of the vulnerability you found might be, coordinating with a vendor to make sure that fixes can be put in place before the, uh, the rest of the world learns about the flaw, and then maybe even coordinating with some of the larger potential victims. So again, in this case, we, we heard at the time that the vulnerability was announced that several major providers were already immune to the vulnerability. All the, the really big name providers that this could have impacted had already put a Band-Aid over it at a minimum so that when the world learned about it, it didn't turn into a bigger disaster. Yes, and uh, I'm not aware of any attacks having been successfully used in the wild. The fact that a vulnerability exists and is potentially exploitable doesn't make it trivial to build the exploit. And as you say, because of this coordinated responsible disclosure, I think that the good guys got a lead on the bad guys, and in the end, no harm was done. 
Well, keeping out the bad guys is obviously what we're always trying to do. And I, I hear Fujitsu has a new method of doing that with your phone. Now, I'm kind of a fan of some of these newer things we're seeing in the phones. I've seen, you know, of course, Apple with their Touch ID. We've got, uh, I've been playing around with the latest builds of Android. And they have some things where, hey, if you're at a certain geolocation, you can have the security profile behave differently. And I think everything that makes it easier for a user to agree to have their phone be locked most of the time, but, you know, make it not trivial to unlock uh, is a good thing. And, and certainly having to enter a long password in 50 times a day is a deterrent against me choosing a good password, because if I have to keep doing that, I'm not going to choose something that's long and complicated. Do you think Fujitsu's hit on something here? Iris scanning? I mean, we've seen facial recognition be scammed. We've seen fingerprints be scammed. Uh, is this just kind of another tragedy waiting to happen? It's hard to say, Chester. Iris recognition, as far as I know, has one of the best error rates of any current biometric mechanism. So retina scanning has gone. Fingerprint scanning, we know there are some problems with that. Turns out that for the for the budget fingerprint scanners, it's comparatively easy to make a fake. The issue with iris scanning is, you know, what if you get a picture of the person's iris and you can feed it back to the device? So can you just take another phone with a picture of the person's face on it and point one phone at the other and get through? From what I've read, they're using the front-facing selfie camera to recognize your iris. It's only a two-megapixel jobby. And so it may be that they're relying on quite low resolution input from which to build this spectrum of information that's used for iris recognition. Now, you say only two megapixels, but, you know, the, I remember when I got my first two megapixel camera and I was quite excited because it was significantly better than the 1.2 megapixel in the 800K one I'd had previously. So, I mean, two megapixels is quite a bit if you're holding it up within a short distance of your of your eye. Yes, I guess the issue is how well the algorithm deals with uh, what I believe is called liveness analysis, which is where you determine that you're looking at a real iris and not at a fake one. Now, there are some various techniques. I believe there's a thing the pupil does called hippus, which is uh, Wikipedia calls the spasmodic, rhythmic, but regular dilating and contracting pupillary movements. So in other words, there's a kind of pulsation that you get to the pupil and the iris, which I imagine would be quite hard to synthesize but then what if you're able to print a fake iris onto a contact lens with a hole in it, put it in your eye and fake the system? What I don't doubt is biometric hackers are really on this already, just like the Chaos Computer Club guys got onto the Samsung and the uh, Apple fingerprint scanners when they came out and found that there was a well-known low-tech solution involving a wood glue mold that let them walk right past it. So it'll be interesting to see how this pans out. As you say... Anything that means that you tend to lock the phone more often than you leave it unlocked, as long as you don't make it too easy to get in, then maybe we'll end up with people with shorter lock times and uh, a better likelihood that a sternum phone will not be abused or have the data leached off it. Yeah, certainly with my, my test devices, I've, I've now increased my password length because it's a rare thing that I'm somewhere where I have to enter the password as often. And, and I'm not sure if I would do that with my production phone yet uh, as an experiment of, you know, what is the user convenience factor? I found it to be an interesting compromise. I think the great thing about this one, Chester, is that in terms of persuading people that they can go through the hassle of doing it, 
and trusting the raw technology involved, it's using a selfie camera. So it's not as though we're asking people to learn and trust some completely new behavior, like we were in the old days with peering into a lens for a retina scan, or swiping your finger on a fingerprint scanner, which has that sort of feeling of cops and robbers shows, doesn't it? This is asking people to do something that they may do several times a day anyway. So what if I want to compromise Mr. Ducklin's Fujitsu Android phone, but I don't have a copy of his iris, so I'm going to have to acquire a copy of his iris somehow. What if I were to perhaps download a database of stolen information from a spyware company who perhaps has some photos of Mr. Ducklin's face that contain his iris that I could use to fake out his phone? Photographs taken with a camera pointing the other way, where there's a 21 megapixel camera, you mean? Oh, perhaps. Uh, you're talking about M-Spy, aren't you? The world's favorite spyware company selling commercial spyware supposedly legally. The company that I suppose it's fair to say lots of people love to hate. Apparently they got breached and a huge data dump was made. And there seems to be this feeling that it's this company that sells software that lets people spy on their spouse or their employees or whatever. So who cares that it's stolen information? We're going to dump it and we're going to dox the people involved. And that way we'll out the company and we'll out the people who are doing the surveillance. Unfortunately, it looks as though mixed up in amongst all that data is doxing information about the people who are under surveillance, who now become, if you like, a double victim. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I was thinking in the United States that this could make this a far more serious crime if it turns out the perpetrators were in the US and that there's very strong privacy protection laws for information about children, for example. And we do know that the M-Spy application is marketed as something that you can keep an eye on little Johnny or little Janie when they're playing with their iPhone, for example, or their Android device to, to know what your kids are up to. And now, of course, whoever stole this information and has published it would be in breach of a lot of different, uh, certainly a lot of different U.S. laws. And I imagine that's true in many different jurisdictions around the world. Yes, and it also raises that question of, the, of how to respond when people come to us, supposedly as security experts, and say, so what have you found in the data? Did you download it? Have you had a look? Well, we shouldn't really be going there either. If this information really does contain what it seems it does, and there's gigabytes and gigabytes of it, really, that needs to be downloaded and analysed if there's some forensic analysis to be done in a way that is well controlled and well regulated in the way that any crime might be investigated. What we don't want is hundreds, thousands of people downloading this stuff and pouring through it themselves, where the, A, they might expose themselves to stuff that they can't unsee, and B, where they've now got the data lying around in yet another place. So if it's removed from the first, it's retained in the second and the third and the fourth. So I guess the moral of the story is when there's a big data dump like this and there is some controversy about the sorts of people who might be victimized as a result, the best thing to do is not to go looking. It, it can only end in tears as far as I'm concerned. Well, and it's likely to be illegal in almost uh, every jurisdiction in the world to possess that information. Uh, usually, it's certainly in the U.S., it's uh, only really legal for stolen information to be outed by the press. And what the press is is a different question. But most of us, it's quite clear, are not members of the press and would not have any legal shielding. Leave it alone. Let the company deal with it if it's, in fact, their data. I'm not sure that that's been established yet. This vigilante justice stuff on the Internet doesn't somehow work any different than vigilante justice does in real life. So, you know, treat it with the same caution. Now... 
technology is not always the problem or even the solution necessarily. And this is one of those things that I know isn't theoretical. I mean, I remember when, when BlackBerry was resisting adding cameras into their BlackBerry devices because they did such a running business with the United States government over having cell phones that couldn't take pictures of, say, classified documents within Department of Defense buildings, things like that. It was a real advantage to not have a camera. In this case, we see some U.S. government employees were doing uh, exactly that thing, or I guess it was a contractor, wasn't it? You're talking about the passport agency, I guess. Apparently, there are three people who've been indicted. One of them was a contractor, but who worked at the passport agency. And as I understand it, what they're alleged to have done They got hold of information. They didn't need a lot. They got name, address, taxation identifier, stuff like that. They then passed this information on to third parties who used it to get fraudulent ID. That ID was used to get commercial lines of credit, and that credit was used to buy in bulk easily resaleable electronic stuff like iPhones, iPads, etc. Fortunately, let's assume that they're guilty. They've been caught, so there's going to be an investigation. It does raise a terribly thorny question about whom can you trust, doesn't it? So one of the things I, I, I liked uh, in Canada when I moved from the United States was not having to supply my social insurance number as frequently for, for things like credit checks because it, it limits my exposure. But in this case, if I have to hand it to the passport office, I have to hand it to the passport office. I mean, is there anything I can do to protect my information aside from try not to give it to anyone other than the passport office? I don't know. I guess the good news here is that somebody did notice and was able to trace these fraudulent IDs back to where they probably came from. Unfortunately, it was all retroactive, retrospective. Yeah, I mean, I I find the camera on my phone actually useful for reading that small print that we're always telling uh, naked security readers they should pay attention to before they accept license agreements or free Wi-Fi. I mean, when when the print gets really tiny, you just take out the uh, cell phone camera take a snapshot and start zooming into those 21 megapixels until you can uh, read the legalese. (laughs) On that note, I'm going to wrap up Software Security Chat Chat 199. As always, for the latest security news, visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. You can get all of our podcasts via RSS on iTunes or on the TuneIn app. And until next time, stay secure.